if this was a daily podcast, I would release this on a Thursday and call it Theology Thursday. But we're a weekly podcast and we publish on Wednesday, so I can't do that. But the reason I would is because I'm having Pastor Rich Lusk on again to dive deep into applying the scriptures to our lives and the importance of doing that. And one of the ways that we do that is by looking at the systems of government, family, church, state. How should we be operating in all these spheres? How do these spheres interact with each other? You've heard me talk about this a lot on the podcast, but we dive deep into that this time, uh, as well as the origins of our legal system being found in Israel's uh, civil code and uh, English common law uh, and William Blackstone. And we touch on all of those things uh, as we show how our legal system um, was really formed over years with the scriptures being right at the heart and center of it something that people, even Christians today, seem to have a problem with. And on that note, uh, in the the behind-the-scenes segment, we're going to touch on a very hot topic, Christian nationalism. What is it? What are these people talking about? It's this accusation that's getting hurled all over the place, Um, and it doesn't even seem like anyone can define those terms. So we're going to jump on that and give you our opinion of of what is happening in that conversation uh, and, and what's really going on. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast. have a great episode for you today. Uh, we will be jumping into a topic that I think is paramount into us understanding uh, the issues of our day and how we got here. Uh, it's something I touch on frequently, but I only touch on it in many of my podcasts, but we're going to drill all the way down into it. Um, and really what it gets to is <clears throat> um, the heritage that we've essentially forsaken in our nation, in our state, um, and the consequences of it and how really returning to that heritage is is the only way, uh, the only path forward. So we're going to be digging into um, sphere sovereignty. Um, You've heard me talk about it on the show. Uh, God has instituted three governments um, of which Christ is Lord over all three governments, the government of the family, the government of the church, and the government of the state. We're going to talk about how all those operate together, what separations there are, Uh, and give some examples about where those things have been violated that we've all seen. And hopefully this will begin to just make sense to you. I remember the first time I really heard this, I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. And all this stuff is is the stuff that our founders knew and uh, understood when they were writing our, you know, the documents that governed our nation and all these other things. So um, we're just going back to the old ways, going back to the roots uh, and the ultimate root, which is the Word of God. So and this is obviously going to be a theological podcast. Uh, as I have Pastor Rich Lust joining me to talk about this, he does such a wonderful job um, honing in on these issues and articulating them uh, better than I can. So, Pastor Rich, thank you so much for joining us. Brian, as always, it is great to be with you. Yes, sir. And so we're going to hone in on sphere sovereignty, uh, jurisdictional sphere, you know, sphere jurisdictional authorities, uh, as I said. Uh, we're also going to talk about... Um, how are the entire American legal system is rooted in English common law as well as the Mosaic law uh, or case law that, that's found in Scripture in the Old Testament. Uh, that's what our founders used to interpret law, to write law, to uh, figure out what was just, what, what God said was good, our founders said was good. 
uh, what God said was bad, our founder said was bad, and, and, and we, we're going to go through and talk about um, that case law that we find in Scripture and the general equity of it and how that's been applied uh, both in England and also here in America. And then our behind-the-scenes segment is one you don't want to miss, uh, where we hone in on um, really the Christian nationalism debate. What is it? Define our terms. Um, what does it mean when someone says Christian nationalists? Often it's confused with white nationalism, and you hear that, and it's like, oogity-boogity. It's like, no, it's, it's Christian nationalism. Um, our founders were Christian nationalists. There's no doubt about that. It's not even an argument, um, and we've lost our way. So we really dive into that conversation um, and uh, I think make it a much less scary term. Uh, there's something about terms where people just eek. So I think that will be really helpful. <clears throat> and so that you guys can have access to that, um, become a member. Uh, we need you guys to join uh, 1819 News as a member. You can go to the website, 1819news.com, click the button, become a member. Membership start as little as $5 a month. With that, you get access to behind-the-scenes footage like the segment I was just discussing. Uh, but you also get merch, um, and, and more than anything, you're supporting honest journalism, you're supporting independent journalism, you're supporting nonprofit journalism that's being done on behalf of the people. So we need you guys to join in uh, to make sure that we have the financial resources to continue serving you. So with that, let's jump in. Uh, we've talked a little bit about it. Um, you know, um, I think how I really kind of want to roll into this is um, hitting some some big theological words and then breaking it down uh, and, and what that means. Um, I think in modern evangelical culture, um, and, and just for everybody listening, why are you jumping into theology? Well, I'm having a pastor on to discuss how the Bible and theology applies to life, so that's why we're diving headfirst into it this way. Um, there has been, and you could probably tell me the year, this sweeping um, aversion of, of God's law, God's word as a standard for life. Um, the, the, the term in theological you know, nomenclature would be antinomianism, which means antinomos, which means you, you're living as though there is no law. God, when he saves us, we always hear people talking about being set free. We were set free from the bondage of sin. We sin, uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil, we were in bondage to those things. We could not fight back against our flesh, the bondage of the will. Um, that is what we were in slavery to, but we weren't free to just become whatever we wanted. We were freed because we were bought. We were bought with a price, and we have a new master, and now Christ is our master, right? And that's the whole uh, idea of, of what's taking place there is there was a, a purchasing, and so where we were slaves uh, to sin, now we're slaves to righteousness, is what the Bible says. Uh, Jesus says, if you love me, you will do what I command. He is the good master. He is the one who's purchased us out of the bondage of sin, um, and he is now our master. And so we have a, a duty to obey him. <clears throat> that is so foreign in pulpits around the United States of America, but it's right out of the Bible. It's crystal clear, and, our, and we have a, a culture that is just completely averse to looking at the word of God and saying, it says to do this, it says not to do that. I was just discussing with my children last night in family worship. Uh, we were reading Proverbs 1. You know, fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Right? What does that mean? And so, if we fear God, that means we believe that there is a God who is in heaven. His Son is seated at his right hand. He's righteously ruling over all things. He created all things, and he tells us how to live. We can either 
do that and flourish or we can not do that and not flourish, right? And there's a whole lot of not flourishing going on right now. So talk about a little bit of our aversion um, to to obedience um, and, and kind of where that antinomian spirit has come in. And then we'll jump into kind of that sphere of sovereignty. Yeah, Brian, you make it all sound so simple. Yeah. <laughs> Just fear God, obey God, and it all work out, right? Uh, yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of truth in that. Uh, yeah, antinomianism, uh, uh, opposition to God's law, is something that uh, is certainly alive and well in, uh, you could say, evangelical culture or within the church today. Certainly on the progressive side of things, you see it. Uh, but I would say that really you also see it um, even in uh, a lot of evangelical churches that, um, that, that just have an aversion to God's law and, and that don't teach or preach God's law. And, uh, and that, that's a problem. So trace it back to a passage we all know, we're all familiar with, the Great Commission. Uh, in the Great Commission, we know that, the, uh, that Jesus tells his disciples to go and um, make all the world's nations his disciples. So this is something we'll come back to in talking about sphere sovereignty because it's really important. But he goes on from there and he says to baptize them and to teach them everything he has commanded. We'll teach everything he has commanded. That means to teach the whole Bible and how the Bible applies to all of life. So you really can't fulfill the Great Commission. It's not enough to preach the gospel. That's, that does not fulfill the Great Commission by itself. You also have to teach everything Jesus has commanded, which means you can't be antinomian. You have to explain how the Word of God applies to all of life, what God has commanded us to do in every area of life, how it applies to individuals as well as to institutions. So the mission of the church requires us uh, to teach and uh, apply the whole of God's word to the whole of life. All of the Bible for all of life. That's what I like to say. Amen. Well, and one of the ways that we do that is um, through the issuing of what what we call jurisdictional spheres of of government um there's more than these three but i believe these three are primary and you can begin to see them um as you know and i always walk people through this when i preach on fatherhood i always tell people you know so here you have um, the family government the church government and the civil government and we all understand instinctively you see um you know uh, a person, you know, putting their hand on a Bible uh, and swearing in that they're going to be a judge or they're going to be a law enforcement officer or they're going to hold some type of a uh, a role in the civil government, okay? And so they have to put their hand on the Bible and put their other hand up in the air and they take an oath with their hand on the Bible that they're going to uphold the Constitution, defend the Constitution, um, and obviously the significance of their hand being on the Bible is that that, that is incumbent as well in it is that they're going to operate in a way that uh, is pleasing to the Lord and that they're going to uphold righteousness. And so <clears throat> you see police officers, judges, presidents, senators, everyone does this swearing-in ceremony, um, and they're basically receiving authority from God. Um, and it, it, There's so many places to jump on this, but they're receiving authority from God, and with that authority comes responsibility. And because they've been given uh, more authority, God's going to hold them responsible for what they do with that authority, and we see it crystal clear in the civil sphere, and no one has any problem really obeying uh, a, a cop or a judge or someone who's been given authority in that sphere. Everyone's like, absolutely, do what they say. Um, then you move over into the church, and you see this ordination ceremony where um, a pastor, you know, a man is becoming a pastor, and it's it's very, very similar to that swearing-in ceremony, right, where 
Um, you see that this person who has been chosen by God and is picked out and affirmed by his church, and that person is being given authority in that church government. Uh, and with that authority comes more responsibility. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, you see in, in the family, though, who is it that's that office holder, right? And, you know, imagine being going back to being a judge that doesn't do what he's supposed to do, and he has to stand before God and answer to what he he did with that authority he gave him. And if he perverted justice, talk about the fear of God, right? Imagine a pastor who didn't preach the full word because he was worried about putting butts in seats or, you know, he didn't handle the situation in the church, which allowed his church to be devoured by wolves or whatever. And he's going to have to stand before God. Well, you get over here to the family sphere and it becomes crystal clear that the person who's given that authority in the home is the father, right? It's not to say the mother doesn't have authority over the children. She does, but the person who's given authority and has governing in, in that sphere is, is fathers. And so fathers should fear um, that, you know, and they should understand that they hold an office as well. And that should make the role of a father that much more serious to them when they begin to see these three spheres. Yeah, that's really, really good. So, yes, we could identify more than these three spheres, certainly. And we could even start by talking about self, self-government. Uh, and you could certainly talk about other spheres uh, within society like education or business or the arts or music, what have you. But yes, it's really clear from Scripture, God has ordained three basic governments, three basic institutions that really serve as the pillars of any society. And so you have family, state, and church. And each one of these uh, institutions has a, a realm or a sphere. That's where this language of sphere sovereignty comes from, which actually the, the language of sphere sovereignty, as far as I know, really traces back to the Dutch Reformed tradition, although there are similar uh, concepts in other theological traditions, especially within Protestantism uh, have, you know, coming out of the Reformation. But that, that's kind of how it's come, back, come down to us. Uh, so there are these different spheres, these different governments, these different zones of life, and God has established these three basic governments of family, state, and church. To the family has been entrusted the rod. So think about the symbols that Scripture uses for each one of these. To the family has been assigned the rod. The state has been given the sword. And the church has been given the keys. So fathers are responsible for using the rod as a, that's obviously disciplinary, but it's really pointing to the whole task of a father. Um, they've been given the task of shaping the next generation, forming, molding, discipling the next generation. The civil magistrate has been given uh, the sword to enforce God's justice in the civil realm. And I, and I qualify that because it doesn't mean, uh, well, I'll put it to you this way. Sphere sovereignty is crucial to understanding that there's a, a distinction between sins and crimes. Crimes are, of course, sins, and they're sins that rise to the level that they have to be dealt with by the civil magistrate. Uh, but not, the civil magistrate would be going far beyond his sphere or his zone if he tried to punish every single sin. That's not his job. It's not his job yeah. to punish every single sin, but it is his job to um, enforce the justice of God within the civil realm in those ways that are appropriate. Uh, so Romans 13 talks about the civil magistrate possessing the sword. And, and actually Romans 13 says that the civil magistrate is God's deacon, God's servant. That's how his role is described. So uh, it's, it's, it is specifically God's justice, as you talked about, defined by God's law, uh, that the magistrate is to enforce. And then you've got the keys which belong to the church, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is something that Jesus mentioned several times, keys that have been entrusted to the elders. And while we don't believe in any um, infallibility 
that exercised on the part of the elders. Insofar as elders are uh, applying scripture, when they admit somebody to the kingdom, when they open the kingdom, when they, when they bring somebody into the membership of the church, or when they exclude somebody through a church discipline process that could result in excommunication, when they exercise the keys, opening and closing the door to the kingdom of God to particular people, uh, they are doing what God has called them to do. That's their jurisdiction. Uh, they shepherd people. They oversee people. Uh, they're the spiritual shepherds uh, who are um, responsible for discipling the people that have been entrusted to their care, and the keys are the symbol of that, represent that. So I think the key, really the genius of sphere sovereignty, you talked about responsibility and authority going together. That's exactly right. Each one of these realms, each one of these spheres, has a certain authority and a certain responsibility. And sphere sovereignty is largely about staying in your lane and doing the things that God has called that particular sphere to do. And you also, you mentioned this in the open opening, and I think it's exactly right, and it's something that needs to be emphasized. Jesus is Lord over each of these spheres, and Jesus rules each one of these spheres through his word. So go back to what I said about the Great Commission, teaching uh, the nations everything that Christ has commanded. Well, the whole word is the word of Christ. The whole Bible is the word of Christ to us. And so we're to teach the whole Bible to whole nations. Uh, we're, so it, again, it's not just a matter of preaching a narrow message of salvation, as important as that is, knowing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he rose to life for your justification, that he uh, calls you to uh, trust in him and to repent of your sins uh, so that you can be saved eternally. That's absolutely crucial. But that's not all God wants. God does not just want saved souls. God wants um, civilizations, cultures, societies, nations that honor him, that live according to his design. And that's really what the Great Commission is about, not just getting souls into heaven, but producing what we might call Christendom, uh, a God-honoring, God-glorifying civilization. Uh, so that, that's really, really important. And sphere sovereignty is key to that. What sphere sovereignty means is that each one of these spheres will be discipled. Each one of these spheres is accountable to Jesus. Each one of these spheres is accountable to do or responsible to do what Jesus has commanded it to do. And uh, so that, that, that's really, really crucial. Yeah. I think it's good to note um, two points I want to make in, 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 in kind of echoing what you're saying about Christ being Lord above all. It gets into that whole idea where, we, you know, it's the, the whole Thomas Jefferson separation of church and state and how it's misunderstood. <clears throat> we believe in separation of church and state. Literally, we're talking about it right now. The church is a completely separate system of government with different responsibilities and purpose that God created it for than the state. The state is separate from the church. The church is separate from the family. There's, there's, there's overlapping here and there. But overall, God created the family for certain things. He created the church to do certain things. And he created the state to do certain things. But while they may be separate from each other, separate church, separate from state, none of them are separated from Christ. Exactly. Right, So Christ is Lord over every institution, right? And so when people are like, oh, that's separation of church and state, you know, there's no place for Jesus in the state. And it's like, no, it is Jesus's state. It's his, right? right. Is it Kuiper that says there's not one square inch in all creation in which Christ doesn't proclaim mine, yes, right? It's right. all his. Um, and I want to say it's Colossians. Again, I'm glad I have a pastor here to correct me if I'm saying something stupid, but um, so he's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer, sustainer of all things. But it says that that with, there was not anything created. You know what? I'm, help me out here. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so we, Jesus is the creator. John 1 yeah. makes that point. Uh, Colossians 1 makes that point yeah. that God the Father created the world through his Son yeah. and, and, and Spirit. And if you go back to Genesis 1, I think you see that where the Father speaks. Of course, we know the Son is the Word, and the yeah. Spirit hovers over the face of the waters, over the, over the face of the earth. So, yeah, absolutely. So uh, Christ is the creator, and yes, he is the sustainer. Colossians 1 talks about him as the one in whom all things are held together. So, of course, Christ is the authority over all things. I love yeah. how you said that, that the state is his. Is. The state belongs to Jesus. In fact, one of the big conflicts that the early Christians had and what really led to early Christians being persecuted was the fact that within the Roman Empire, uh, Caesar had um, divine pretensions. Caesar claimed to be uh, a deity, God on earth, if you will. And the Christians said no. Uh, in fact, if you look at uh, Acts chapter 17, what gets the Christians in hot water there is they are preaching that there is another king above Caesar named Jesus, a king that even Caesar has to bow the knee before. And that's what got the Christians into hot water. Francis Schaeffer talked about this, how uh, Rome would have been happy to accept Jesus into the pantheon of the gods and make Jesus one more of, of the dozens and dozens of gods that people worshipped in that day. But that's not Christ, what Christians were uh, were willing to do. That, that was not the Christian message. The Christian message was not add Jesus to your pantheon of gods. It is Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Uh, he is the true God. The, the, the idols that you worship in your pantheon, <clears throat> they're false gods. Uh, Jesus is exposing them for what they are, and Jesus alone is to be worshiped. Mm. Man, that's good. So separation of church and state is a big deal in American history, obviously. And, and we'll get into this later. Really what separation of church and state meant in its original context, you know, say going back to Jefferson, was uh, when, when, when that phrase first began to appear among the, the founding fathers of our nation, was not that the state would be free from any religious or moral claims that might come from God through his word or free from the authority of Jesus. Rather, the point was that church and state have their own jurisdiction, and we're not going to blend those jurisdictions, say, by having a, a, a nationally established church or something like that. Yeah. Uh, although, and again, this is something we'll talk about later on, but uh, states and the various colonies and states in the early Union, several of those states did have established churches at the state level, which did not violate the First Amendment. That, that's actually a really good way to think about this, is that uh, when the First Amendment um, talks about Congress not making a law uh, regarding religious establishment, that, that's really what it's about. It's, it's saying we're not going to have a nationally established church at the federal level. But I believe it was nine of the 13 original colonies, original states, had established churches at the state level. And they did not violate that amendment because it doesn't apply to them. It applies to Congress. And it's talking about what would happen at the federal level. So, um, so if you go back to uh, America's founding, and certainly before that, uh, there, it was well understood that the state is intrinsically religious and that uh, Jesus makes claims that Caesar uh, must obey. And we, the state cannot be religiously neutral, uh, nor should the state worship some other god. Uh, the state is beholden to Jesus. So that's really, really important. But what that means is Caesar, the civil magistrate, will enforce the word of God within his domain, not outside of it. And that's why sphere sovereignty is so important. Again, sphere sovereignty is about each one of these governments, each one of these rulers, fathers, magistrates, elders, 
staying in their lane, doing what God has assigned them to do, and not usurping the function of other spheres, which when that happens, that is a really big problem. Uh, when one sphere tries to take over um, what actually rightly belongs to another sphere. Yeah. And really, church history is nothing but a battle between does the church have more power or does the state have more power, right? And, and really, they all, they're all equal under Christ, right? And that's the thing. But there's always this war. The state needs to have more power. No, the church. And so you look like Roman Catholic Church. The, the church was actually exercising the power of the sword in certain cases. And, sure. and, and it was, right. it was right. a weird blend, and, and, and it wasn't what it was supposed to be. Yeah, where the pope actually raised an army. and that Yeah, I mean, I, yeah. there was all kinds of messiness about this within the, particularly in the late medieval period. And, and certainly the Reformation came along and sorted a lot of that out. But let me, here's another example of this. John Calvin's most famous work, and what really I think is perhaps the most important work in the uh, formation of modern Western civilization, and, and that includes modern Western, you could just say, political freedoms that we enjoy, civil freedoms that we enjoy, John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. But this is what's interesting. Calvin was a Frenchman, and of course the nation of France did not get on board with the Reformation. In fact, they, they persecuted um, Protestants Huguenots. within within yeah. France. They drove out the Huguenots, all that. But what's interesting is that Calvin actually dedicated uh, the Institutes to the King of France. He actually wrote it. Um, he wrote it to the king. He, he, you know, he's written this great work, this kind of comprehensive summary of Christian doctrine, you know, 1,500 pages in modern translation. And he dedicates the whole thing to the King of France and basically says, this is what you would need to know uh, to govern uh, in a wise and and in a way that is fitting for a Christian king. And in book four of Calvin's Institutes, he has quite a bit to say about uh, the role of the civil magistrate, the honor that is due to the civil magistrate, the limits uh, put upon the civil magistrate by God, uh, when it is appropriate to disobey the civil magistrate, and then what is one thing that's very important for us as Americans, um, when it is appropriate to throw off a government because it's no longer legitimate. Uh, which it was actually Calvin's teaching on that, which he didn't make this up. He inherited it from a previous tradition that was already being developed within the medieval period and, of course, ultimately traces back to Scripture itself. But that was really key to the American War for Independence. They were, it was really an application of Calvin's political thought to our situation uh, here in America. Yeah. And there's all, you know, if, if somebody wants to pursue that, I would tell them to go look at uh, Douglas Kelly's book, The Emergence of Liberty in the Modern World, does a really good job of spelling all of that out. But uh, that's a story that most American Christians, even most American, I'm Presbyterian, I can say most Presbyterian Christians do not know, but it's a really important part of our heritage. Yeah. And it, it's the one thing that even if, you, if you're not going into the Institutes of the Christian Faith, uh, you know, from Calvin or going back into Augustine or anything like that, if you just do a, a brief history of the founders, all the founders talked about freedom cannot be separate from morality, and the only way for morality is the Christian faith. Even the deists and the, you know, the Ben Franklins and the Thomas Jeffersons, even they understood the Christian faith was the only way to have liberty because the Christian faith taught a standard. Um, and if you're possessed by the Holy Spirit and you're obeying Christ and there's a critical mass of people in a civilization that are obeying God, that means that government doesn't have to be big. You don't need a nanny state because people are governing themselves, people are exactly. governing their families. If things get bad in the family, the church is there to help out. If things get crazy with the church and the family, well, then, you know, the, 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 the state's there to 
take that person out, essentially, right, and use the power of the sword. And so it's this whole system of government that allowed there to be a free society. And it's so funny. So many think tanks worship at the idol of free markets and limited government, okay? And they're like, look, we don't care about the social issues. If people want to be gay, that's fine. If people want to, you know, get married outside of wedlock or if people want to live this way or, you know, live in a way that, 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 that what we would say doesn't, doesn't honor God, that doesn't matter. We just need to make sure that people have their individual liberties and uh, that there's limited governments and, and you know, limited governments and, and free markets. Well, they don't understand that you can't have those without a moral society. Right. And if right. you have an immoral society and sin is creeping in, it's went from crouching at the door to creeping in and taking over and you have a complete a completely adulterous nation as we do now, there is no such thing as morality anymore and it, and it requires morality to have free markets. It requires right. um, a certain level of ethics to have these things. And so yeah. I think that's a a huge point that people um, miss big time. Yeah, that's really good. You, yeah, what we have now is legislated immorality in many yeah. cases. Uh, but all, all, all legislation is going to reflect the morality of the people. There's yeah. no such thing as um, laws that are not rooted in some vision of morality, uh, yeah. some, some, some higher moral code that governs the state. So, yeah, that's absolutely right. So, so, so one thing sphere sovereignty means is that you have these three basic jurisdictions, these three basic governments. Each one is accountable to Christ and ought to function under the lordship of Christ. Uh, so, you, so, for example, you do have a, a, a distinction between church and state, but you cannot separate the state from religion any more than you can separate the church from religion. Yeah. Uh, the state is going to have a religious identity and is going to be governed by some kind of religious vision of life. And so for, for us as Christians, of course, we would very much like for that to be the Christian faith because we believe that is what is best for everybody. That is what would most serve human flourishing. You talked yeah. about freedom. And, and Unbelievers in a Christian society can still flourish, right? Absolutely, right. And, and in fact, would, would flourish more, more so than they do under uh, what we currently have. Uh, because the right kinds of things would be encouraged. Uh, there would actually be, I think, in many ways, uh, greater liberty. Uh, than what we are currently uh, enduring. So, I mean, obviously not all of our freedoms have been taken away, but um, there are all kinds of ways in which uh, our civil government encourages things uh, that it ought not to encourage or suppresses things that ought to be, that, that should not be suppressed, that should be encouraged. So you think about our, you know, how is our state related to the family? Well, the state has um, in many ways, dismantled the family. Certainly that's mm. what's happened in our inner cities, and you can see the fruit of that. One other thing, thinking about the, the, uh, the jurisdiction of these different governments, for the most part, those jurisdictions are very well-defined. There are places where there could be some overlap or where there may be some ambiguity or fuzziness, or there are places where exactly where the, 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 the lines are to be drawn is actually a matter of contention. One example would be COVID and the lockdowns, maybe something we can come back to. Another example would be education. It, we just take it for granted today that education belongs to the sphere of the state. But historically, that's not been the case. The family yeah. and even the church have been much more involved in education than the state. So that, that's also something. If we want to recover Christian society, if we want to have a discipled nation, that's something we've really got to think about. Yeah, there's not a worse institution for education than the state. Like, it's yeah. literally like... It, that's not what it was built for. That's not what it's there for. It's there to reward good and to punish the evildoer. 
that's really in summation what the state is there to do. And then as, as our founder said, is to make sure that everyone else's rights aren't being infringed, right? We have these rights who have been given to us by God, again, from our founders' rights that were endowed to us by our creator, and those rights are inalienable, and the civil magistrate is there to make sure that those rights aren't being alienable. I'm kidding right, on that, right. but that's the point, right? And so <clears throat> that does not mean education. The church is there for spiritual discipleship, and the family is there for you know pedagogy discipleship, right? The idea of forming children into the next generation. So if the argument in who's supposed to educate, well, yeah, well, it's it's the church or the state, or excuse me, it's the church or the family. It's one of those two. I believe that the ultimate responsibility for the discipleship of the children lands squarely on the shoulders of the father and the family, mm-hmm. um, but the church is there to help them along. Um, you can see how churches can create some type of an educational parachurch setup or maybe even a school uh, where people who know Latin can come teach the, the, you know, the church members' kids Latin or something like that. That's where this should be taking place, and it's funny, there's... <clears throat> On Alabama Unfiltered Radio, they're always debating, like at least once, you know, every two weeks it will come up on whether whether we should have Christianity in the public schools. Well, if they brought, they got prayer out of the school and they brought the Bible. No, it's not the state's job to be teaching kids about Jesus. That's not what they do. Education should be completely removed from the state, and, and that should be left up to families and churches, um, period. And, and, and if some, you know, pagan wants to teach their kids to pagan, they're free to do that, but 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 the education, I mean, look at what's happened, the bureaucracy that it's created, the, the absolute stranglehold that it's created, the dependence that it's created. It's unbelievable, and that's just a, a perfect clear picture of, of what violating sphere sovereignty uh, can create. And real quick, I want to end yeah. on this, and we can hit a commercial break. <clears throat> One more picture, I think, that you can see how these spheres work together uh, and what's going on in those spheres. Um, as Rich said, each each sphere has a tool. So you have the family that has the rod of correction. Uh, the church has the keys of the kingdom, church discipline, you know, allowing people into membership, removing people from membership. And then the, the civil magistrate has the sword, right? Uh, it says they do not bear the sword in vain. And so we know that sword can be everything from punitive whatever up to the point of execution uh, for someone who's committed a crime that's worthy of execution. So let's go into the family, and you can see... <clears throat> This, this tool that's been given to the government being used properly in a way that honors God, not perfectly because we can never apply anything perfectly because we're fallen. However, he gives this tool to fallen man uh, to use in a way that brings him honor and glory. And if we do that, so we'll take the rod of correction. Can that be abused? Of course it can. We all know someone who <clears throat> um, lived in a family where that was abused. Can it be neglected? That's more of what we're seeing right now is a bunch of families that are neglecting use of the rod of correction. And I would argue that the neglect of correction is just as bad as the abuse. It, it causes irreparable harm, whether it you're neglecting or whether you're abusing. Uh, it causes irreparable harm. And so when it's being used the way that it's supposed to, everyone in the church flourishes and everyone in the civil realm flourishes. Everyone flourishes because the family is operating the way that it's supposed to. And then you go to the church. When the church is functioning the way that it's supposed to, uh, and it's exercising the keys the way that it's supposed to, families flourish. Because if they don't, if they 
that they abuse the keys, right, and they're heavy-handed in their church discipline proceedings or whatever, that's obviously going to cause problems uh, for families and everything else. But if they neglect to do it, you have wolves that get into the church, and then that wreaks havoc on the families as well. And so that the, that tool that's given to that sphere has to be exercised properly, and when it is, everyone flourishes. And then you look at the civil magistrate. They're given the sword. Can that be abused? Absolutely. We've all seen that. But what are we dealing with right now? The neglect of it. You know, um, I had the attorney general uh, come on, and, and, you know, his eyes got this big when I said it just because I, I speak plainly about this stuff because this is just the way I see things. And I realize we live in a society that does not speak plainly about these things. You know, but he brought up the story about how there was a, a guy who had had basically, you know, sodomized or just brutally raped, like, multiple three-year-olds. And I'm like, can we kill him? Because he, he needs yeah. to die. Like, that, like the, that is the job of the state is to kill right. that guy. Right, like that falls squarely within there. Well, no, because of the you know, and and so we've we've even legislatively set it up so that the civil magistrate can't actually do what it's supposed to do in those settings. And so we do at least in Alabama have it to where you can kill someone who's guilty of murder uh, or certain levels of, of of other crimes. But you know, the neglect of using the sword has a society that is maybe unregenerate, not believing, not church going. Um, but when the sword is being used properly, there's still a fear of God that exists, right? Even among the unbeliever, um, that, that it would be very hard to get that back now. But, I mean, you still have to do it. But a society, you know, if you bring us back 200 years and we were using that properly, even the unbelievers knew, like, hey, yeah, no, I really want to do that. My flesh wants to do this bad thing. But I know if I do that, they're going to they're gonna hang me. So I'm not going to do that, right? Or... They would be stupid, and they would do it, and then they would get hung, right? And, and so, anyway, the, the point that I'm making is when each government uses the tool that they've been given, it causes flourishing within that government as well as it benefiting all the other governments that are involved. Yeah, the goal, again, is a Christian society in which family, church, and state all serve God in their own in the way God has designed. And so they work together to manifest the kingdom of God. That's the ideal, yeah. that these three institutions would work together in a godly way to promote a godly civilization. That, that, that is the goal. And when we talk about, say, Christendom, that's really what we mean. I do want to wrap up this segment. I'll just throw a few things out. Maybe this will plant some seeds for people to um, pursue uh, on their own if they'd like. One, education uh, and the state. You know, so we could ask what, what realm does education belong to. I'm a Presbyterian. In our tradition, we got a couple uh, theologians from the 19th century, R.L. Dabney in the South, A.A. Hodge in the North. Both of them made dire predictions about public schools in their day, what the secularization of education, statist education, would do. Hodge, for example, said that the schools would become the greatest engines of atheism the world has ever known. Mm. Now, I think you could replace atheism with something else, maybe hedonism or you know whatever you want to call it, but I think he was exactly right. And when we see, uh, you know, what we see today is not really the failure of public education. It's the success. It's doing what it was designed to do, which is to make passive uh, people who cannot think for themselves and who will just basically do whatever the state wants them to do. It's kind of a brave new world kind of thing in our education system. And I'm not saying there are obviously lots of faithful Christians in the educational system. I'm not denigrating their work at all. I, I get that. There's lots of good teachers out there, all of that. I'm just saying the system as a whole, because it is officially atheistic, what do you expect? What do you expect? 
Yeah. Uh, what, what, what you ought to expect is exactly what we're getting. Another thing I want to mention is there, there are lots and lots of examples that you could give of where sphere sovereignty comes into play and maybe where more than one sphere has a role. So we use the example of, let's say, uh, a father who is um, excessively ab abusive with his children or, say, a husband who is physically abusive with his wife. To whom does she appeal? Okay. Um, I, if, let's say that it's a, a family that they're church members, they're professing Christians, and he's physically abusive towards his wife. She should appeal to her elders so that he can be excommunicated if he does not repent, and she should also appeal to the magistrate so he can be punished appropriately uh, for what he's done. Uh, so, so there you have multiple jurisdictions getting involved, each one acting in its own way. So the church would have its own disciplinary course, and the state would have its own way of pursuing justice. And so more than one sphere would be in, involved, but in a different way. And that's, that's something that sphere sovereignty can help us understand. Um, another thing to, to keep in mind is that these spheres can become rivals to the gospel, and it's, I think it's really obvious how that can happen with the state. We've talked about that, statism, that the state can set itself up as a rival. You see that with the early church, where clearly that's what Caesar was doing. Lots of examples of this uh, throughout history, where the, where the state becomes an idol, statism, and uh, basically the state uh, pretends to be a god. And that's a huge problem, obviously, and Christians should have nothing to do with that. Francis Schaeffer said that's really the big, that's going to be the big issue for Christians, and I think he's, he's been proven right about that. That is our big issue today. But it's important to understand that the family can become a rival to the kingdom as well. And if you read the Gospels, you will find that often Jesus sees the threat that the family can play. And so he'll say things like, you've got to hate your father and mother in comparison to how much you love me if you want to be my disciple. Uh, he, 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 at one point, they think Jesus is crazy in Mark chapter 2, and, uh, and his brothers and sisters and his mother, they're out looking for him, and he says, who, who are my, brother and my brothers and my sisters? He says, whoever does the will of God, as if to say, I'm creating a new family. The ultimate family is going to be the family that follows me. The church is going to be, in a way, a new family. And obviously, what the, we would hope that the church would be discipling our natural families. That's the goal. But... Um, there's also a very real sense in which the church is family. Um, one other thing, and I think this is also important, we talk about Jesus being Lord over all the spheres, and that's absolutely crucial to this message. But it's also, I think, important to understand that the church has a kind of centrality amongst the spheres. And certainly you could say that's because the church is eternal in ways that other spheres are not. Um, the, the, you know, we're not going to have, for example, marriage in the resurrection, but we'll still have that, you know, what the church is will still continue to exist. Um, not, not every aspect of what the church is, but the church is God's saved people. So the church will continue to exist for all eternity in a way that other institutions will not. The church also fulfills those other institutions in a certain way. I just said the church in a certain way is um, the true and ultimate family. You could say also the church is the true and ultimate kingdom. Uh, so there's a, a sense in which that's got to be understood. And then also uh, the, the church has a critical role in discipling the other spheres. Now, this does not mean that the pastor or the elders tell everybody else how to do their job. It doesn't mean that you go to the church to learn uh, auto repair or carpentry or computer programming. But it does mean that the church disciples mechanics and computer programmers and carpenters in such a way that they can do their work Christianly. So they can carry out their vocation in a Christian way. And that's, again, part of the Great Commission. So we're not going to try to tell you how to do your job, but we are going to give you the worldview framework within which you can do your job Christianly. 
so that your jobs and that you're not building that's the good. Tower of Babel, you're building the New Jerusalem. And that's really important for us to see as well, I think, the centrality of the church to all of this. Mm, that is good. Well, good stuff. That'll wrap up our first segment. If you guys want to stick around, uh, we've got more, and we'll be jumping into uh, the origins of our legal system and how that's rooted in Scripture as well as English common law, William Blackstone, uh, all very, very good stuff. Uh, we'll see you on the other side. Hey, y'all. It's Allison Sinclair with Alabama Unfiltered. A lot of people ask me, what can I do to actually make a difference in D.C. and in my state government? And one of the most effective things you can do is write an old school letter to your elected officials. It seems super simple, but a written through the mail letter gets their attention much more than an email or a phone call. I use the Quick Letter app from my phone to write letters and it makes it so easy to write all of my representatives in DC and in our state a real letter in a matter of minutes. And so Quick Letter automatically determines your representatives and their mailing addresses. You write or dictate a letter on your phone and tap the name of every representative you want to receive that letter. And Quick Letter handles the delivery address, the return address, the greeting, the closing, the signature, the printing, stuffing, stamping, and placing your letter in the U.S. mail. Your governor, attorney general, state legislators, your U.S. senators, and congressmen need to hear from you. And it doesn't have to be elaborate. Actually, a brief, simple letter usually has the most impact. Send a quick letter today and every day. Go to quickletter.com, that's K-W-I-K, quickletter.com, or download the Quick Letter app today. Welcome back in, everyone. Thank you for sticking around through the commercial break. We've got more with Pastor Rich uh, coming to you. But before we jump into that, I do want to talk about our sponsor, Quick Letter, K-W-I-K Letter. You can download his app in the App Store, whether you're Apple, Android, Go to the App Store, download the Quick Letter app, that's K-W-I-K Letter, um, to begin writing letters to your legislators now. Uh, he makes it super simple to make your voices heard uh, with the people who need to hear your voice so they represent you in the legislature, whether that's in Washington, D.C., or whether it's in Montgomery. Um, it's uh, super simple, so, so download the app and get to writing today. All right, um, so we left off talking Sphere Sovereignty I want to move into talking about how our legal system was rooted in Israel Civil Code, English Common Law, William Blackstone, General Equity, um, and all that stuff. But before we jump into all that, um, let's talk about COVID as the litmus test in sphere sovereignty. Yeah, Brian, th I think that uh, we've talked about sphere sovereignty and how there are these different jurisdictions, these different governments that God has established. I think COVID is actually a really good test case for how sphere sovereignty might work. And I think you, you, you saw during COVID how poorly equipped a lot of the church was in its understanding of these things, which I think left the church really, really vulnerable. So to give you one example of, of many, um, the question of lockdowns and in particular locking down churches who makes that decision that the church is not going to meet? Uh, the civil magistrate, uh, it, that's sort of the default. And a lot of people obviously uh, thought that the civil magistrate had the power to completely shut down churches over COVID. But the church has a government of its own. 
the church has elders who make decisions for the community, who rule over the community, who are responsible for the community. And I think ultimately the decision has to rest with them. And they can certainly take into account whatever public health information the state makes available. Uh, they're also going to, of course, be looking at the scriptures and what the scripture teaches about the necessity and centrality of worship. And ultimately, I think the decision rests with them. But I think a lot of churches, probably because I think they don't understand sphere sovereignty and maybe don't understand really what the church is, uh, were not able to make a case. Just like they weren't really able to make a case for why it was important for churches to continue meeting uh, you know, very quickly uh, after it became clear that COVID was not, you know, the Black Death or the Black Plague or something like that all over again. So that's something that I think it should be kept in mind going forward as well. The one other thing I would say about sphere sovereignty, and I hinted this earlier, and I won't say a whole lot about it. I've written some blog posts on it if people want to look it up. But um, the church does have a kind of centrality. Uh, think of it as the hub of the wheel with spokes coming out to these other spheres. And of course, the, the family and the state would be the other main spheres, but you've got other areas of life, like, say, education and arts and entertainment and so forth, any number of spheres you could mention. The church has a kind of central responsibility to disciple all of these other spheres. And that doesn't mean that the church is going to teach mechanics how to do auto repair or uh, plumbers how to do plumbing. But it does mean that the church is going to teach the worldview framework within which that work or that business or that endeavor can be carried out faithfully and Christianly. And I think that's also really, really important so that we understand that the discipleship that uh, God calls us to, that Christ calls us to in the Great Commission is comprehensive, that it stretches across all of life. And that's really important as well. So th there are a lot of reasons why I think we should think of the church as the central sphere, but that's one, because the church has this central discipling task uh, that, that it, it flows through uh, word and sacrament. The word is it's proclaimed when we gather, the, the, the table, the Lord's table, uh, in which we celebrate covenant renewal. All of that is, is very, very important to understanding how sphere sovereignty actually works. You know, it's interesting, you know, in, in kind of the Uber left uh, places, not only did they want you not to meet, but then they were like, but if you do meet, uh, don't do communion and don't sing. And they were saying it was because, you know, spit would fly out of your mouth when you were singing and, you know, sacraments you're ingesting. And so, you know, but at the end of the day, we know what was behind that shutdown and the things. And it's almost like, you know, if if singing and partaking of the Lord's Supper wasn't your favorite part of church, it should be after watching that. Right. Because <laughs> these wicked forces, what was it? They wanted you to stop singing. And they wanted you to stop partaking in the Lord's Supper. Those were the two real things, right? And I was like, wow. Obviously, they didn't want us to meet, period. And so, obviously, the, the utter importance of that can't be overstated. But I did think that that was interesting, that those were the, the two, like, even, even beyond not meeting, it was don't take the Lord's Supper and don't sing. thought that was yeah, sometimes Satan. Sometimes Satan shows his cards. Sometimes he tips his hand a little bit, and you, you, can, you can see what Satan attacks, and you know, yeah. ah, okay, so this is what's really most yeah. central. We it's interesting, the early church father, I think it was, uh, was it Ira Irenaeus or Ignatius? I can't remember. One of them, when he, it was Ignatius, I believe, when he was uh, about to be martyred, his encouragement to the saints was continue meeting together because when you do so, the powers of Satan are broken. Uh, and so he saw the church's liturgy, the church's gathering for worship as central to uh, the spiritual war that we're called to wage. And, and whatever we say about the culture war, behind the culture war is the spiritual war. Yeah. And that, that's a war that the church is called to fight. 
and the church has weapons for which there are no uh, countermeasures uh, on the part of the enemy. Um, so we can do things like pray to the God who rules over all of creation, and we can sing his praises, and there's nothing equ equivalent on the other side. Yep. Um, if I do you know, a, a, a political uh, mailer campaign, well, somebody on the other side can match that kind of activity. And, and that's still a perfectly good activity to do. I'm not trying to discourage that. Yeah. But I'm just saying that we've got weapons that the world can't match, and we tap into those weapons far too infrequently. Yeah, and, and I think in the same way that they came after, you know, the Lord's Supper and singing, and is the same thing that happens to us in our minds and in our hearts, and it's a warfare that's happening to us all the time, and we don't even feel it. You know, when we see our brother going through something, we're like, man, if there's anything I can do, I mean, I guess I'll just be praying for you. Well, it's like, well, prayer is probably the best thing you can do for them. It really and truly is, but we say, well, I, I'll just be praying, you know, wish there was something yeah. more I could do. And again, yeah, we want to do other things other than pray, and, and you know, but... Uh, it's an interesting thing that that, that that that's you know the way that our mind approaches. Uh, we think that the most powerful things we we tend to think of as the least, and so gathering in worship, beating back the powers of darkness week in and week out, as we you know sing psalms and sing hymns and 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 preach the word and, and partake of the Lord's Supper, and we do this week in and week out, we're actually beating back the forces of darkness. Um, and the idea of resistance, I think. Uh, to me, I was at uh, the Mises Institute, did a, an event in Birmingham a couple weeks ago, and, and I, why they had me there, I have no idea. I'm not a think tank guy, and I'm not a libertarian, but there I was in the midst of them. Uh, but good folks, I really did enjoy it. And uh, I talked about resistance and, and, and the idea of, you know, you look at, at COVID, the COVID tyranny and how to resist that. I mean, to me, it was like, get vaccinated. No. Put a mask on. No. Uh, you know, do this. No. Like, just know, like, you don't have the authority to tell me to do these things, right? And understanding that. And there's that resistance. And I think a lot of guys like that beat on their chest. You can't tell me what to do. Don't tread on me. America. Resistance. Like, we have that in us. But there's another form of resistance that, that begins with going to church every Sunday and worshiping God as we're resisting the yeah. powers of darkness. Getting yeah, married right. young. Kind of what I was talking about with Tucker. Getting married young. Having lots of children. You know, they tell you, oh, uh, don't get married until you're 30. No, I think I'll get married when I'm 20. Only have a boy and a girl, you know, two kids. And I think I'll have 10. Um, you know, eat soy and be gay. No, thanks. I'll eat steak and power lift. Like, whatever they're telling you, just do the opposite, right? It does seem that way. Yeah. yeah um, so so there's so many other things here to talk about. I just want to throw a few, a couple more things out for your listeners yeah. to consider, and then we can move on. We, don't, we can, obviously can't... Uh, chase down every one of these rabbit trails. But, you know, the, I, when I mentioned COVID, uh, I talked about the jurisdiction between church and, and state with the lockdowns, who has authority to prevent the church from meeting. But the same kind of issues were raised over the vaccine ma mandates. It's really a question of whose jurisdiction is that? Uh, who gets to make those decisions? And if you really want to depress it, you could ask questions about education. To which one of those spheres does education belong? Does education belong with the state's sphere? Or is it better situated in the family sphere or even the church's sphere? Or does it somehow overlap with all of them? I mean, those, those are the kind of questions we need to be asking if we really want to make progress in building a Christian civilization. Yeah. Uh, his, who, who gets to make these decisions and which one of these jurisdictions uh, has control over things like education or health care or what have you? Yeah. And we know that secular humanism in the spirit of the age is a religion and they've taken the state, and now they're using the power of the sword to inflict their religion upon us. Yeah, there's no neutrality. Yeah, no such thing. 
All right. Well, on that uh, no such thing as neutrality note, I think that's a great uh, segue to go into. And again, this is all stuff I've talked about quickly on the podcast, but I'm wanting to just drill down on, you know, um, maybe we could begin with what is general equity. And so you go into the Westminster Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is a confession of faith. What is a confession? A confession is basically just a, a document that a church agrees to adhere to either fully or mostly. Um, if you're going to be an elder or a deacon in church, you need to fully subscribe to the confession. Confessionalism, anyway, it's a whole deal. If you're not familiar with it, it's something we can maybe talk about another time. But those are the two primary confessions is the, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is the Baptist Confession, um, and the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a Presbyterian confession. They're very, very close to one another, small differences. Um, and they both, if I'm correct on this, correct me if I'm wrong, have something when it talks to you know the continuation of the law the 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 law has a moral what is it um man why am i failing here the three parts of the law moral, moral civil, civil and ceremonial yeah and so you have moral cer- civil and ceremonial um the ten commandments stay right the moral law transcends christ life death birth you know resurrection you know ascension all that the moral law stays um, the ceremonial law goes away. Christ was the once for all propitiation. That means he was the, the one who satisfied the righteous wrath of God. He died. He absolved. Like all of the sacrifices in the ceremonial law in the Old Testament were pointing to the one sacrifice, the one um, Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. It was all pointing to him. And so when he died, he, he fulfilled the ceremonial law, and that goes away. But then what do we do with the civil law? So the Ten Commandments continues, all ten. Um, but, you know, ceremonial goes away. So what do we do with the civil law? Well, the, the confessions say that we take the general equity found therein. And so that the Israel's civil code, um, and you, you can give the example, but, like, in my mind, it's like if an ox gores a pregnant lady, you know, the, all that kind of stuff. This is, this is how you have to handle the situation. Um, that is we should lean on that when we're creating our laws and our founders did England did really throughout Western civilization, also known as Christendom. They did. Um, and really up until recently, uh, we always have, but go ahead on that. Yeah. So, so this whole discussion we're having presupposes what we talked about earlier. And that is that Christ is Lord over the state. Uh, just as he's Lord over everything, he's Lord over Caesar. And so what would it mean if Caesar converted? What would it mean if you had civil rulers who wanted to govern their nation in a Christian way? And the way that historically Christians have dealt with that question is by going back to Old Testament law. Now, when you go back to Old Testament law and you start reading in Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you find a lot of interesting things. You do find obviously different categories of of law. And you talked about those those three categories. Uh, I'm not totally satisfied with those categories. Um, I might suggest something different, but that'd be that'd be another rabbit trail to go down sometime. <laughs> so we will we'll, we'll sidestep that for the moment. But what you find is that the Torah is given in the uh, form of case law. 
So it's very different than the way that our law codes tend to work today, which is regulatory law, where there's a regulation for everything. And so you multiply regulations to cover every conceivable situation. Like think about filling out your taxes and you come to this line in your tax form and you have to go read this booklet and figure out how to fill in that. And then, you know, you come to the next line, you go, go read another booklet or look up another web page and read some long article to figure out how to fill in the next thing. It's regulatory because they're trying to cover every conceivable situation. They've got a regulation for every little thing. Case law doesn't work that way. Case law works by principle and by precedent. And so embedded in the cases is a principle. You have to discover what that principle is. And then that is what we mean by general equity. Uh, so the, the, the general equity of the law, it, that's the, 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 the principles that the cases are illustrating. So there's not a law to cover every conceivable situation. For example, the uh, Torah says nothing about uh, water pollution, which is, uh, which is a major issue in every society there's ever been. But it says lots of other things about how we are to get along with each other and how property rights are to work and so forth that could help you understand how to deal with water right issues when they emerge, you know, or water pollution issues when they emerge, that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, so operating by principle and by precedent is actually a form of wisdom, and it actually allows the Torah to be a much more concise and shorter law code. Like if you think about it, uh, you know, we have laws on, on uh, in our nation, it just you could fill library shelf after library shelf of laws with books, you know, with, with, with you know, with the laws that have been passed that are still on the books, uh, laws that, uh, you know, supposedly we're all supposed to obey. Case law doesn't work that way. Uh, there was actually no legislature in ancient Israel, which doesn't mean they wouldn't have had something similar with their judicial body. Uh, but they weren't in the business of creating a bunch of laws, you know, a bunch of new laws to cover every conceivable situation. And one thing that comes out of that, when you have a regulatory approach to law rather than a case law approach, is that it becomes very easy to catch almost anybody and turn almost anybody into a criminal at any given time. This was used, for example, in the Soviet Union, you know, where they had so many laws on the books that they could, at any given time, they could arrest anybody and they could find some obscure regulation they had violated. Uh, so it makes everybody vulnerable. With case law, you cannot do that. Uh, with case law, the, the principles are there and the precedents are set and, that, and that's easily accessible to everybody. So we all know what the law is. We know how it's supposed to work. You could easily master the Torah and understand how it applied to your particular situation, your life, and then you would know whether or not you're a criminal, basically. Uh, so, uh, and, and there's great wisdom in it. It's really interesting to me. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses says to the people of Israel, if you will keep this law, you will be a light to the nations, and the nations will look at you, and they will say, no other nation has a God like this, because no other nation has a law like this with such wisdom, uh, such wonderful wisdom. And I really think that that same kind of opportunity is available to us. If we as Christians in our own lives and in our families and ultimately in our nations, in our states and in our nations, would obey these laws, it would be a wonderful testimony to the wisdom of God because God's law is designed to fit with human nature. God's law is designed for our flourishing when it's kept. So if, if we uh, adhere to, and, and, and when I, 
when we talk about going back to the Old Testament law, obviously it's not a matter of lifting up laws out of Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and just dropping them down into modern society. You would have to ask all kinds of questions before you could do that. And some of those questions might be pretty complicated in terms of how uh, any given law might apply or how it might come over. But again, if you can discover the principle embedded in the law, then that's, that's where you know God has revealed his justice to us. One thing you see, for example, is a distinction in the law between sins and crimes. Not every sin uh, gets punished. That's one thing that people worry about. If you talk about a Christian state or a Christian nation is, oh, you know, then you Christians are just going to enforce uh, all of your beliefs about sin on everybody else, even if we don't share those. Well, the reality is there are actually very few crimes. Now, there are some things in, in the Torah that are crimes that are not crimes in modern America. Um, say in, in the area of, of sex crimes would be one area where you'd see that. But uh, in general, you would have far fewer crimes uh, than what we have today. And you'd have far more freedom, to be honest. Uh, so, uh, the, yeah. so if you look at how the church, how, how Christian societies have dealt with this historically, going back to Constantine, you know, I know Constantine gets a bad rap, but uh, actually Constantine you know, if you think about where he was as a pagan king who then converts, pagan emperor who converts, and now he's going to be the, you know, the the, the first true Christian emperor, uh, he didn't, he, you know, he couldn't, he didn't have a whole lot he could rely on in terms of uh, historical precedent for what it meant to be a Christian emperor. Uh, but he did surround himself with many wise Christians and actually our civil liberties, even our religious, what we might call religious freedom, uh, in many ways, that, that tradition traces back to Constantine. Constantine did not make it illegal for pagans to be pagans and for pagans to believe pagan things. But one thing he did do is he outlawed pagan sacrifice. No more human sacrifice, no more sacrificing animals to the pagan gods. Well, I, you know, the reality is we would say that in America we have religious freedom, but we don't let people sacrifice uh, animals, uh, much less humans, to, uh, to false gods. We don't. We've outlawed that. And that, that goes back to Constantine. Um, King Alfred was another major benchmark. Actually, even before that, Theodosius was another, was another name to know who, who went further in using the general equity of the Old Testament law to inform the legal code. King Alfred brought this over to, uh, to England. Uh, King Alfred was one, undoubtedly one of the greatest kings who ever lived. That's why he's known as Alfred the Great. Uh, he truly was a great king, and, and the reforms that he brought to his land reflected that. Things like due process. Okay, where does due process come from? No pagan land has ever had due process. That is a contribution of the Torah uh, that you get to face your accuser in court. Uh, that, is, that is a contribution of the wisdom of Torah to Western jurisprudence. Uh, and then if you fast forward, of course, so, so with King Alfred and, and you just kind of have this momentum building through the medieval period. And of course, the law wasn't always applied appropriately. A lot of times mistakes were made. A lot of times they, you know, things went off the rails as happens when, you know, because Christians are still sinners. And of course, you didn't, not all these rulers were Christian. But uh, by the time you get to the Reformation, this is pretty well established as uh, there, there's a Christian common law tradition that grows out of applying the principles embedded in the Torah to civil and social life. And of course, the reformers carried that forward and that came over to America. And that's really our heritage. So the freedoms that we have enjoyed, you know, think Bill of Rights, that is the Christian that, that, that is a, that's part of our Christian heritage. 
uh, that is part of the legacy of Christendom, things like the Bill of Rights. And uh, so it's incredibly important to understand that link. These rights, these freedoms didn't just drop out of the sky. They were the product of the leaven of the gospel, the leaven of God's word, working its way through a society, creating a new kind of civilization with, with freedoms that were uh, unheard of before, unheard of in, in, in uh, pagan realms. So that was incredible. Uh, that's why I brought you on, uh, because you can go into that much better than I can uh, at a much deeper level than I can. And it's an interesting thing that there's Christians when, you know, you begin to talk about God's law and using, you know, the wisdom of the God's word when, you know, um, governing the affairs of men. And someone would be like, oh, my gosh, you know, and again, getting into these 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 topics and these words that you guys, a lot of our listeners probably don't know, but. If someone's like, oh, well, if, if, if you have postmillennial eschatology, that means that you're automatically a theonomist. And it's like, I don't know what postmillennial eschatology or theonomy is. I don't know what you're talking about. But I, you know, anyway, this is when I was first kind of starting to stumble into this stuff. And I'm like, so I looked up theonomy and I'm like, well, I, don't, I don't understand what the problem is here. Theonomists believe that we should use God's law to create man's law. What other standard should we use, right? Like, is there is there some other standard we should be using to make laws of man if, if it's human reason? Um, here we are, <laughs> right? The reason yeah. I have a job working in news pointing out that there's drag queens grooming children in the Huntsville City School System, welcome to human reason uh, governing the affairs of men. So that was stupid. You know, so we either as Christians believe that there's a standard and it was written or, or, or we don't and that, you know, human reason is enough to govern the affairs of men and, and then we get what we get. But Yeah, you're, you're exactly right. What is hard for me to fathom is that there are some Christians who think having society organized under Christ's lordship would be a bad thing <laughs> or, or, or that think that somehow living under God's law would be oppressive. I mean, what kind of message does that send when we say we don't want God's law to shape the laws of the land? We're basically saying uh, man knows better than God and, and we, we won't have this man to rule over us. We don't want Jesus ruling over us. Uh, and of course, it's not surprising when non-Christians say those kinds of things. That's what you expect from them. But when Christians say that kind of thing, that's that's truly, truly shocking. And that should be a real that should be very disturbing to us. Uh, we can have all kinds of debates over whether or not God's law, you know, exactly what God's law teaches. It's perfectly appropriate to have those kinds of debates. Uh, but to, to debate whether or not the law of God is good, whether or not it's good for society, whether or not it serves human flourishing, just go read Psalm 19 or Psalm 119. Uh, and maybe if we sang Psalm 19 and Psalm 119 in our churches, we wouldn't have this problem because we'd be singing about the glories and wonders of God's law all the time. And so we'd understand this. Yeah. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible. And literally all it is is... I love your law. I love your ways. I love your commandments. I love your law. I love your ways. I love your commandments. Just repeated for like ten pages. Right. That's and then, all he, it and is. then he says, and then he says, I weep because your law is broken. And then he goes back to saying, I love your law. Your law is so great. Your law is so wonderful. So yes. So so th this is how I think we as Christians ought to frame our involvement in politics in a religiously pluralistic or you know highly secularized environment. Uh, the reason we want uh, the things that we want in the, in, the, in, the, in the civil realm, the reason we want Christ acknowledged as Lord, the reason we want to use the Bible to shape public policy, 
uh, is not just it's not it's not because we're tribalistic and we just want what's best for us. It's because out of love for neighbor, we want what's best for all. We want we want everybody to live in the best and most free and most just society possible. And the way to have the most free and just society possible is to organize that society according to the principles found in God's word. That's the bottom line. And that's, and that's what, what we, we want. want. It's not, we're not trying to win a culture war. We're trying to love our neighbor yeah. and do what's best for our neighbor. Yeah. And we'll end with this, and we'll go into our behind the scenes uh, for our members only uh, and continue the conversation there. But, um, you know, Paul Washer uh, said, you know, this is, this is when my mind kind of opened because I think when, when, when you become a believer in America, odds are – it's, uh, I, I joke that, you know, every American is Arminian dispensationalist uh, when, they're, when they're reborn. They're born into that, and you have to study your way out of it. And I probably just made a whole bunch of people mad when I said that. But, you know, I, I try to make somebody mad every podcast episode, and I think I just did it there. But, um, you know, is uh, we marinate in, these, in, the, in, in the, these ideas until we study our way out of them. And one of the is really the idea that, yeah, if, if you adhere to the Ten Commandments, you're a legalist. By definition, that's what it means. If you still adhere to God's law, you're a legalist. We, you know, we don't, we don't want religion. We want a relationship. And you hear all these things and these kind of these colloquialisms or whatever, and it's like, well, think about what you're really saying. And then just read the Scriptures, even just the New Testament. Say you did get rid of the Old Testament, which you should not do. But if you did, Jesus is all about obeying some commandments, right? But we'll just go to the Decalogue, the Moral Law, the Ten Commandments, and say, okay, this is what Paul Washer said when it, when it clicked for me, was, so it, you think obeying God's law is oppressive. Tell me which law is oppressing you. Is it the one where you're not allowed to kill people? Is it the one where you shouldn't cheat on your wife? Is it the one where you don't steal? Which one of these is the one that's oppressing you? Which one is keeping you from doing what you want to do? And I was just like, whoa. Great point. Yeah, yeah. great point. <laughs> Awesome. Well, uh, Pastor Rich, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Um, Where else can can people find your work? I know, obviously, uh, Pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham. Yeah, so they can go to our church website, uh, trinity-pres.net, and uh, look us up there. There's actually a pastor's page or a pastor's corner that you can access there that's got some of my writings, blog posts and articles, essays, and talks I've given different places. Uh, You can find sermons there and all that kind of stuff. And uh, on the blog in particular, or in some of the essays I've written, I, I, I address some of these kind of questions we've been talking about here today. Good stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I would encourage you guys to do that. I think um, the reason I like to have Rich on all the time, I think he's a, an untapped uh, treasure of uh, good theology and how to apply the Bible uh, to, to life. Um, you know, I know lots of theologian types that can pontificate about high, lofty theological ideas that don't mean anything the end of the day can you can you apply god's word to people's lives and and allow god's word to make a difference in their lives the way that they love their wives their children the way they go about their vocations um the way they interact in civil government all these things matter and and i think you do a great job so thanks for coming in thanks brian great to be here all right guys well until next time put your trust in god and keep your powder dry by the way that was a saying from a guy that believed everything we just said by the way. That's right. I named Oliver. <laughs> I won't say his last name because I don't want to get in trouble. All right.